Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. What we have is a, a short break today. Uh, so this will be a very unspiritual for many of you uh, subject. Um, I'm trying to make it as helpful as I can. I want you to understand what's going on so that as we continue on in our preaching through the book of Acts, that we can understand the issues at hand. We're going to talk about why are certain verses missing from your Bible, but if you have a, a King James Bible, they're there. So what's going on? If you remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, when I last preached, that we found that verse 37 in Acts 8 is treated very differently depending on your translation. Um, if you have the King James, it says this, and Philip said, if you, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered, that Ethiopian eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so that's what you have if you had the New King James or the King James Version and you were listening to me read. If you heard it and you had the New American Standard, which many of you use, um, you would find that that part was in italics or there was a bracket or parentheses around it, in some way marking it out. Um, if you had the English Standard Version, the ESV, or the NET, which is called the New English Translation, you won't have that verse at all. It just skips it. And so as you read along, I, I, even when I read it, I was looking for you, uh, your reactions, and I saw those of you who use the ESV, you're following along, and all of a sudden, you all looked up at me last time. And you're like, where'd those words come from? Because they're not in your Bible. And you didn't even notice that the number went from 36 to 38, and there was no 37. So then you're, the question is, who's messing with my Bible? And then reactions start to build. So at issue is really how we got our Bible. How does that work? And how do we know if we can trust it? This whole issue is a, a subject called textual criticism. And um, I think it's very fascinating. I'm going to try to make it very interesting to you. Um, what I will tell you is I provided on the uh, app my complete notes. What, what I'm literally looking at up here is what you'll be looking at on those notes because if I do some on-the-fly editing where I choose to skip stuff, you can still look at everything that I'm saying. On the very back page of it, uh, the last page, I provide for you a list of recommended reading if you'd like to go deeper into this subject. And I, I start with a very simple book that's very small and very basic, but it does a wonderful job of giving you the sense of what goes on, um, all the way to a very complex one that most of you would find no enjoyment at all called the text of the New Testament. It's Transmission, Corruption, and Restoration by Metzger. Um, so all of these are good books, um, helpful books in showing what is going on. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that if this uh, piques your interest and you decide you want to press further. Every one of you has a Bible, hopefully. It's on your phone, it's under your seat, or it's on your lap in some way. But I would argue that probably most of you have no idea how you got it, why you have it, what, how it came about. Um, why are the verses and the words on your page written the way they are? This is something that most people have no thought of. That's just the Bible. And when you have the kind of preaching that usually occurs in the church today in America, that's no big deal because they're really not interested in the Bible. At the Southern Baptist Convention, we had a convention sermon, and the guy was supposedly doing an exposition uh, of uh, 
Revelation 5. It was sad, 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 sad. It was mostly a rant, and it vaguely touched on chapter 5 of Revelation. But many people thought that he was doing an excellent job of expositing, unfolding the Word of God. But in fact, he hardly touched on it. And that's how most preaching is. It's so high level that you're never forced to look down at your passage. You'll notice, if you haven't, that when uh, Grayson preaches, when I preach, I will frequently say, notice, look with me, look down at your, why are we saying that? Because we don't want you to think that we're the ones that are the authority. The word of God is the authority. That's it. We don't care anything else. What does the Bible say? Not what Pastor Matt thinks. And we make great, take, take great pains to do that. So the more you intently look at a Bible passage, the more these things become important because you'll notice a Bible verse is missing. I remember when I had that happen. When I grew up, I grew up with, like everyone my age, with the King James. And then in the 70s, out came uh, other versions, and I jumped on the bandwagon as a young teenager to have what's called the Living Bible. Some of you older will appreciate that one, and that was the cool one. Um, and, and from there I went and I think I went with the NIV and then ultimately New American Standard, which is what I have used for all these years. Now, here's some examples. Just listen on, on what I mean by this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says in the Legacy Standard Bible, which is like the New American, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. All right? Very simple, for the love of Christ controls us. In the New International Version, the NIV, it's rendered, for Christ's love compels us. Why does one say the love of Christ and the other one say Christ's love? Well, it gets into grammar and it gets into syntax and it gets into how the Greek language works. This is called a genitive. If you weren't taught grammar, you won't care about that or know what it is. But if you're learning uh, grammar, um, certainly you're learning it in our school, you know what a genitive is. It's a part of speech. And you can translate the genitive, which is the love of Christ, that phrase, You can translate it different ways depending on how you understand a genitive to work. And you don't even know this, but you do it without thinking because you understand innately how English works. So one option is to do what's called a subjective genitive. There's about 10 different ways you can handle a genitive. No, No test, so just listen. One is called a subjective genitive, And it would be rendered as Christ's love for us. That Christ's love, it's talking about the love that Christ has for us that compels us. And that's probably the correct one. That's how I would preach it. The other option would be to make it an objective genitive, and that would then be translated or rendered, our love for Christ compels us. The same phrase in Greek, in English, but one is rendered, our love for Christ compels us, and the other way would be Christ's love compels us, all right? Two very different ways. Most translations just simply say the love of Christ and leave that up to you. It's your job to decide which one's it talking about. And that's what your pastors do on us all throughout the week as they're studying. It's things like that that they're making certain that I can look at you with confidence and say, this is what is being said. But if I chose to go the love of uh, or our love for Christ is what motivates us, my sermon would sound very different than if I took Christ's love for us compels us. They would, I could preach both ways. But they would sound very different with very different applications. Just understand, that's happening, and you don't even know it when you have your translation. That's why we're picky about our translations at Missio. Another example is in 1 Corinthians 11, there is that passage about the head covering. Should a woman's head be covered? And if so, with what? Um, and should a man come to church with his head covered? And, and so it gets into this whole issue of head covering. Um, and most translations will translate the words man and woman. 
just the generic broad term of a man or a woman. But if you have the English Standard Version, you will find that at times in that passage, instead of saying woman, it will say wife. That's very different, isn't it? Is a woman to have her head covered or is a wife to have her head covered? Now, when or how is a separate issue, and I've dealt with this in the past, um, so I'm not going to do it here, but which one is it saying? Well, the word is the generic Greek word for woman. It's just, it means woman. But it can mean, in certain contexts, wife. In the same way, a man can sometimes refer to husband. And so the translators chose to say, we think it's going with wife here. So it's only talking about wives having their head covered. So if you're a single woman, uh, you're a widow, any of that, you're free. And, and that's fine if they're right. I think they're wrong. And so when, when, when I think and your pastor begins to say, this is not what it says, you feel like your Bible's getting attacked. Well, these guys should know better than you, pastor, and et cetera, et cetera, the various things I've heard over the years. And so what do you do? What, what, I am a firm believer that you leave the translation broad and let the interpretation take place by the student, meaning you or me, whoever is doing the teaching or studying. But some versions have made those choices and they make the task of teaching the Bible either easier or harder. So there's another example of things that you don't notice, but they're there. Then what you have are those nasty things called verses that are missing. And in the whole debate over should we use the King James only or should we use any of these other translations, this is where it gets into some big deal. So you have Matthew 18, verse 11. Just listen. Um, in Matthew 18, verse 11, it says uh, that the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. A good phrase, a good statement, important. If you look at most of your Bibles, that will be in parentheses or it will be in uh, bold, or some way marked out. If you have the ESV, you won't have it at all. It's just gone. In Mark chapter 11, here's how the King James renders it. It says, but if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Another verse. Most of your versions will have that in parentheses. The ESV, again, just drops it. So is ESV actually just a corrupt Bible that we should burn and throw away and mock? You know, what, what's going on? Those ESV people sure are eager to cut verses out of the Bible. What's, why? Then you come to the book of Mark, which is always fun. How many of you guys know that there are three different endings to the book of Mark? Just curious. Okay, so we got a couple. They have what's called the shorter ending, the longer ending, and then the extra long ending. Um, that's my own term. But there's three different ways it's done. Most likely, it's a short ending, but it's a very complex thing. Verses 9 through 20 does not show up in the vast majority of the Greek manuscripts used to make our Bible. They're just not there. And then at the end, in verse 20, there are some manuscripts that all of a sudden randomly added a few more words. So which one do we take? If you have the King James, it's all right there. But if you have these other versions, you'll have some way they're marked out by parentheses, italics. Sometimes they're down in a footnote, and, and you realize, okay, these are different. They're handled differently. What do we do with that? The most famous one for me, at least, is John chapter 7, verse 53. That's a woman caught in adultery. Everyone's heard that one because anytime people are talking about getting caught in sin, out comes that passage. Well, who are you to judge me and, and let him who has no sin cast the first stone? Yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> That's a theological speak, yada, yada, yada. Um, what do we do with that? Well, it's one of these magical ones. I don't believe it belongs in the New Testament. Um, it was there, and I talked about it when I preached through the book of John, but I also made clear why I don't think that it belongs there. The translators oftentimes will put it there because they don't want to ever be found guilty of taking away or adding to God's word. 
but they usually will mark it out. Here's what's weird about that passage. That passage in some of manuscripts that we use to make our uh, New Testament uh, in English, it shows up instead in not in verse 53, but in what would be verse 36. Other places, it starts at 44. It just kind of wanders around a little bit. And then in many others, it shows up all the way at the end of John in John chapter 21. What happened to John chapter 7? Hells and now shoots all the way over there. Then we actually have it showing up in the Gospel of Luke with some manuscripts. So it literally jumps to a whole different author. What do we do with that? How'd that happen? What, what's going on there? And how do we deal with that? So I want to try to approach this very carefully, but I also have to do it very quickly because I am not teaching a seminary course here. I'm trying to preach to you the Word of God, and so I, I cannot ignore it. I can't pretend it's not there. I don't want to disrespect any of you, especially if you have the King James, because you know full well this is an issue, and I want you to understand that why we do the things that we do and how all this works. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, just before he died on the cross, it says, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, talking about his prayer for the believers. He says, he asks his father, sanctify them in truth. And then he tells you what that truth is. He says, your word is truth. In Psalm 119, you know this verse, in Psalm 105, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Is the word really that or not? Is the word of God really truth or not? In Psalm 19, David says that the word of God is able to restore a soul. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, for what end? So that the man of God can be adequate, which means to be completely filled, equipped for every good work. So Paul says all scripture is actually inspired by God. It's not just the work of man. And so at the core of this whole thing is whether or not the Bible is trustworthy or authoritative. And that's all built upon the understanding that God himself is trustworthy and cannot lie. So Numbers 23 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son a man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And that, that's the basis of our hope is God has promised salvation to those who believe. Did he mean it or not? Do we believe that or not? And why do we believe? You say, well, the Bible says so. And then somebody says, yeah, well, which Bible? Because did you know there's verses missing? And off you go down and start to wonder, can I trust my Bible? So this whole issue then opens up a side debate that can get really ugly regarding the superiority of one translation over another, usually on King James, and they're called King James only people, um, and King James onlyism, and, and, and the debate is, is that the true copy of the Bible or is the New American Standard or NIV? So what I'm going to do is try to systematically but quickly address the whole subject and do it in hopefully a relatively simple format. So first thing we have is we need some explanations. So the first one is we have to understand the issue of autographs. You'll hear that. The autographs, the autographs. And you're like, okay, what's the autographs? The autographs are the actual text written by the actual authors of the various books of the Bible. So it was the actual piece of papyrus or parchment or vellum, which would be an animal skin, that Paul used when he wrote Ephesians. That, that is the autographs. Does that make sense? Not a copy of it. It's not after he wrote it and sent it over to the church in Ephesus and then somebody copied down word for word what he wrote. That's not the autograph. The autograph is the actual documents themselves that were written. We don't have those anymore. 
All right, there's not some magical place out there, and I don't mean that snotty, where we can come and all of a sudden the sunlight shines through and here's this pile of the original documents that Paul or Moses or Isaiah or David wrote. Why? Well, they were written once, and then they were sent, and they were carried to these various locations, then they would be read before the church and then immediately copied and then sent to the next church and the next church and the next. And it would wear out eventually just over the reality of time and use. We believe and we teach that the original autographs were inspired by God, that they were without error, they are infallible. When we say that they are inerrant, that what Paul wrote was without error, and when we say infallible, what we mean is that Paul and what he wrote in his letter to Ephesians is incapable of leading you into error. So they're without error and they will not lead you to error. We believe that about the original autographs. So when you say, do you believe the Bible is, is that do you believe the Bible is inerrant? I would say, yes, I believe the original autographs are inerrant. And you say, well, what's that mean? I'm I'm not saying this is without error. You have to understand that what you have is not the Bible. And this is hard for you to get your head around, I find. What you have is a translation of the Bible. That's not the same thing. I believe that this represents the Bible, I believe that it represents the, the original autographs, but I do not pretend that this is the one that was inspired by God. And for some of you, this can be rather eye-opening, but it's been this way and always has been this way. It just is not always understood. So we do not refer to the autographs as the copies. We don't have those. But what we do have are thousands upon thousands of copies of manuscripts over the centuries with every single verse of the Bible. And that's where textual criticism comes in. That's where the textual critic actually finds himself a job. For the Christian, the Bible will be your ultimate authority. It's based upon a commitment that God exists. He's revealed himself through the Bible. We know that the Bible is of many books, but there's only one story. We know that it was written by 40 different human authors, but each one was under the divine inspiration of God, and it tells one story. We know that it was written over a span of 1,500 years with three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, just a tiny amount of Aramaic but there's still one, just one story. And whenever you have any worldview, you have to understand that that worldview cannot be proven. It's how you see the world, how you view it. Some are better than others. There is that worldview that says for the Christian that this is the word of God and I submit myself to it. And some people will say, well, you got to prove it. You can't prove it. There's, that doesn't mean there's no evidence. There's massive amounts of evidence. But I'll just tell you the dirty little secret. Most people are too lazy to actually go into the work that takes to do that. They just want to say their thing. They'll come up with some little Instagram account at real and did you know? And off they go about the Bible and they just show that they don't know what they're talking about. There's plenty of proof, but ultimately, when you add it all up, it's still going to be, I either accept this or I don't. Now, when I teach the Bible, you know I teach it as being true and authoritative. Your elders are foolish enough to actually think you should obey it, and we expect you to. Serious warnings in the Bible about taking away God's words or adding to them, so you don't want to be guilty of that. So you have in... 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's admonition to Timothy, the young pastor who he led to faith, and now he's sent to Ephesus to go fix some problems at that church. Paul is in prison. He's about ready to get himself killed because of his faith in Christ, and he gives certain final words to his dear son in the faith. He says, be diligent to present yourself, what? 
approved to God. How? How, am this, how is this approval going to occur as a workman who does not need to be ashamed? What is it to not be ashamed before God? Is by handling accurately the word of truth. That's my task. That's the task of any teacher in this church. A pastor or teacher is to be found approved, not by you. In fact, as I've said over the years many times, I don't really care what you think. I'm not trying for your approval. It's The moment I do that, I'm, I might as well quit. In fact, that's part of the problem I have with what's happened with the Southern Baptist Convention is there's too much of an allowing of trying to do what people think is right rather than what does the Scripture say is right, and they're not always the same thing. Human opinion matters much less than God's opinion. I want to be found approved to God. There is a right way in this passage and a wrong way to approach the Bible. Notice that the very idea of accurately handling the word of God means you can also be what? Inaccurate. There's an accurate way and an inaccurate way. Both are handling the Bible, but one is done in an inaccurate manner. It doesn't convey what it says. And the designation of the Bible as being the word of truth That's another genitive, the word of truth. Anytime you see the word of, almost always it's a genitive. It indicates it's not merely containing truth, it's truth's word, that the word is truth. We could also say God's word. Why? Because God is truth. Now, you can accept that, you can reject that, but that's how the Bible describes itself. And you have to make those decisions. So that's the first thing, is just understand the issue of autographs. Next, we need to talk about the manuscript evidence for the King James. Did the slide go? Okay. Um, When we talk about the copies, we have to understand that there are errors in the copy. Unless there is one manuscript that nobody has ever discovered that shows the entire Bible and somehow it has been magically preserved in perfection, and somehow we have like a document that says the Apostle Paul and Moses and Isaiah affirm this is the perfect manuscript, you have to understand that we're dealing with thousands of copies and they have errors. So this brings into play what are called the variants. Literally, hundreds of thousands of variations in your Bible texts. All right, hundreds of thousands. And again, people start being like, I'm not liking this. Well, deal with it. You know, I don't know how to fix that. It's the reality. As my dad would say, Suck it up, buttercup. Yes, sir. What's interesting is that you can look at all those variations, those variants, but you also need to look at the nature of them. What are they? What's actually going on? And what you find out is that once you do that, and they've actually cataloged this, in fact, the invention of the internet and the, and the computer have been hugely helpful in this because now all of those documents are digitized, and now you can search all of these thousands of manuscripts that go all the way back to like 95 AD or AD 95, whichever is the right way to do that. That's way back there. And you can actually search those databases online and actually do this. You can do all sorts of calculations that never before was ever thought possible. And they have found that over almost 100% of them literally changed nothing about the Bible. In other words, most of the variants will be spelling differences. Something most people don't know is that spelling was not standardized until very recently. So you have all sorts of different ways of spelling the name. And you'll see that sometimes in your reading that um, your version has a different word. And it's because the translators chose those texts rather than other ones that had maybe the, the pronunciation that you were taught when you were a kid. Other times the variant is simply word order. You'll have texts that will say Jesus. Others that will say Jesus Christ. 
Others that will say Christ Jesus. Others that will say Jesus Christ our Lord. Others our Lord Jesus Christ. They're all saying the same thing, but you have these word orders and sometimes extra words added in there. And the question is, how did that all come about? Now, there is a tiny number, 0.02%, that do affect doctrine. And those are the ones that your scholars, the Bible scholars, spend their time on. Those are not important. These are, and that's where these translations start to come into play. Now, what you have to understand is that these many variations is not evidence of evil. It's not some secret society that's been around for the last thousands of years trying to corrupt your Bible and lead you astray. It's simply because we have so many manuscripts and they've been copied so many times over the centuries. In fact, they're still discovering them. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. What people don't understand is that we have thousands of these manuscripts, but ancient Greek writers like Sophocles or Aristotle, we only have maybe 15 copies of their works and no original copy. But nobody debates whether or not that's what Aristotle said. But when it comes to the Bible, because it claims to be the word of God, everyone's like, oh, look at this. We have literally thousands upon thousands of copies to work with. We have copies that are literally only a few decades from the original that would have been written. And so behind all of this is the world of textual criticism. It's not uncommon when you talk to a doubter to say that depending on which manuscript you look at, that theological differences can be made. An example of this would be the deity of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have seen the movie. I didn't, but I read the book, The Da Vinci Code, and I read it only because it was taking the world by storm. I'm like, oh, better read it just to be ready for it. A lot of people thought, man, this guy is really helping me understand how we got the Bible. In that horrible book, and it's horribly, it's not even historically accurate in any way, um, it, it pushes the idea that the deity of Jesus Christ was not something until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., So in 325, they invented that Jesus was God. Well, that's stupid. And it's stupid because of manuscripts. We have actual manuscript. It's called P66. There it is. You can read it. That literally is it. Well, it's a digitized image. But on my software, I can actually bring up and it will highlight each word that's there. And I can search it. And I can compare it. And P66, that's its rendering, it's papyrus, that's the P, and then 66 is the number. It is literally written 150 years before the Council of Nicaea. And in it, it has John 1.1. Up there, you don't know it, but you're looking at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The most strongest passage of the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no invention And we can show it through textual criticism. But there are debates about these manuscripts. And it gets into the idea of text types. And I realized after I preached this the first service that I needed a few more slides, but tough. Um, This is what you get. Uh, Text types. You have to understand that there are these families or text types that the various manuscripts fall into. Their lines are not absolute. They get a little fuzzy in in some ways, but generally they fall into three terms that you'll hear. The Alexandrian text, the Western text, and the Byzantine text. And the reason they're called that is they tend to be clustered in certain parts of the world. And so the Alexandrian texts are down in the Egypt area, much drier, and a lot of manuscripts have been discovered over time simply because they don't rot down there. But you also have the Western texts and the influences of that, and then the Byzantine texts, which is what the King James is based off of. These are just simple families, and, and as the copies went They traveled with the people, and they were shared and read in the various churches. They'd be copied. And so gradually, if we started right here in Kenosha, and all of you traveled with 
a letter I asked you to copy down and you all traveled, it would end up in Florida, right? Southern California. Some of you guys would maybe go to Venezuela, whatever. And these copies start going with you. And then they get copied again and again. And gradually, these different areas start to get a compendium of manuscripts, and they all take on similarities. By the 7th century, Greek was no longer the primary language. Up to that point, it was the primary dominant language. By the 7th century, it stopped. And it was really kept only by the Greek Orthodox Church. And so they were the only ones from that point on really producing a lot of Greek manuscripts. That, out of the Greek Orthodox Church, they belonged in Constantinople. That was part of the Byzantine Empire, if you don't know that. And so that's why it's called the Byzantine Text. It was from that area where Constantinople was. It's now Carthage. The method of these were copied in the uh, beginning. It was a letter from Paul. It was read to the church. In fact, we actually have letters, manuscripts of the book of Ephesians, which is a unique book. It actually wasn't written to the Ephesians. It was, uh, there's a reference in Colossians to read the letter for coming from Laodicea, and that's likely the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a weird book. If you look at it, it doesn't read like all of Paul's other letters. It's actually a unique style of letter, and it was a cyclical letter that was designed to be very broad. And so you'll notice when you read it that it doesn't start like most of Paul's letters, and it has no uh, discussion of say hi to Joe and to Mary, our, our beloved sister in Christ, and none of those personal things because it's not being written to a specific church. And in fact, we have manuscripts that leave to the church of, and then it's blank. And then he says, grace and peace. Why? Because as it was being sent, it was left blank. And when you sat there and heard it, they would insert it when they read it to the church of Laodicea, to the church of Ephesus. And it was done that way. Ephesus just happens to be the most important city in that area. And so that's where the most of the copies came from. And everybody who copied that letter as it was read knew he was, they were supposed to write in the word Ephesus. And so they did. That's why we have it. But we have some of the copies and they actually have a different church name like Laodicea. It's really quite cool. By the Middle Ages, the work was mostly done by monks throughout the world, primarily in the Orthodox Church and other monasteries. In the late 1400s, Constantinople fell to the Muslims, and so the Byzantine Empire fell, and many of those monks grabbed the manuscripts they had and they fled for their lives and they ended up in Europe. So that's how English, which is what we read and speak, came into being. And these copies covered quite a bit of time, and it had been the labor of these monks. Now we come to a guy named Erasmus and Stephanus and Beza. I'm, I hope this is helpful. We're going to go through it anyhow. Um, Erasmus. Uh, incredible man, incredible intellect, Roman Catholic priest and a scholar. He created up a whole new Greek New Testament, all right? A whole New Testament. Primarily, most of the time, well, by that time, the only Bible the church used was what's called the Latin Vulgate and was written back in the 300s by a guy named Jerome. That was the official and was in Latin, not Greek or Hebrew. And many people could literally couldn't, many of the scholars couldn't read Greek or Hebrew, but it began to have a resurgence and they wanted to say, let's look at this in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, a little, little Aramaic, which is much like Hebrew. And he actually created an entire New Testament written in Greek, which is the New Testament language in 1516. That is the basis for your King James Version. That's where it came from. 
He was a brilliant man. He was the greatest Latin scholar of his day, and he taught or learned Greek when he was in his 30s, and he became the greatest, greatest Greek scholar of his day. He was an incredible scholar. He was very passionate about the Bible in its original languages. As I said, the Vulgate was what was used. It was in Latin. It was written from the 300s. That was the accepted version of the Bible, but Erasmus actually created his own translation of the Latin and had that alongside his Greek. So if you were to look at the Erasmus Bible, the New Testament, it would have two columns, one in Greek and one in Latin, and you could it's called a polyglot. Um, some people call it a diglot. These are all things you get to learn. Um, he made his Greek New Testament and was produced on a newly invented thing called the printing press. So for the first time, it was no longer dependent upon you two to be my copyists and me droning on and you're just trying to faithfully not fall asleep while you write word for word what I'm saying. From that day forward, the printing press existed. Once you get the type all set up, bam, you can produce another copy just like the original that was used. He did five more, a total of five editions. Why? Because there's a lot of typos and errors in his uh, manuscript. And so he kept improving on it. In fact, there was one thing that was really, really important that he did, two things, one with the book of Revelation, one with the book of 1 John. Now, out of that, we ultimately end up with, on the far side, the Texas Receptus. That's this thing right here. If you want to come and look at it, you can see the Texas Receptus. You can't read it unless you know Greek, but I got one. Um, that's what ultimately came from all of this. So five editions by Erasmus. Then a guy named Stephanus, and you see the date he did it. He basically used all of what Erasmus did, and then what he did was try to improve upon that with what manuscripts he had available. Then, after Stephanus did his work, a guy comes along named Beza, and Beza, at the end of the century, took both Erasmus and Stephanus's Greek New Testament and worked it some more. And out of those three volumes comes, ultimately, in the 1900s, the Texas Receptus, which means the received text. All that is, is that it was that, that term or the authorized version. It, it, all the Texas Receptus means is in an advertisement for it, they call it the received text. That's it. There's no deep meaning behind that phrase. What's interesting is in the very first edition that Erasmus did, he didn't have a Greek text of all of the book of Revelation. The last six verses were missing. They didn't have them anywhere. It was in the Latin Vulgate, but not in any Greek. He only had a few uh, Greek New Test uh, Greek manuscripts to work with, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So what he did was he knew it was missing six verses, so he took the Latin Vulgate, translated it back into Greek, and then stuck those in his Greek New Testament. And because he was doing the translation of a translation of a translation, his doesn't sound like any Greek that we have anywhere. All of the Greek manuscripts we've discovered over the years since then, none of them are like what his is in his first rendering of Revelation in Greek. The second and third editions where he was doing the improvements, something happened during that time. Between the second and third edition, a whole verse came into being. It's called the Johannine comma. The Johannine, which means John, the Johannine comma. I'll explain that in a second. By the 19th century, a guy named Scrivener took all of those labors and he produced this, the Texas Receptus. This Greek text is based off of uh, an English text, actually, that used the Greek... Just trying to trace, trace this. This is based off of an English translation that was based off of those translations 
and then brought back into Greek. He took the Greek text that the King James translators used, looked at what text choices were made, and these Greek texts had various variations, and he made decisions on what should be rendered as the official Greek New Testament. Understand that even what he was dealing with had these variations. I say that because people who hold to King James only tend to try to say that only the King James and the Texas Receptus is without error. All the other ones are have those errors. What you have to understand is that there is not a single Greek manuscript that's identical to the Texas Receptus. That's no big deal. It's just understand that it's not somehow a magical document. So let me give you three examples. Ephesians 3.9. Notice it says the word administration. I Hopefully it's bolded or something. Yeah. Um, administration. That's the New American Standard. In light of, of what is the administration of the mystery. The King James has it this way, what is the fellowship? That's a very different word. And the reason, because in our Greek text that your translation, if you don't have the King James, your translation uses a different Greek text. In fact, it's one of these. Um, And the, the Greek word is oikonomia, oikonomia, which means administration the law of the house. That's just oikos and namas. Oikonomia. Listen how similar that is to koinonia. Oikonomia, koinonia. Now you're a tired monk sitting on a bed of straw with a flickering candle in a damp room, and you got this dude who's droning on for the next 10 hours, and he's reading the Greek manuscript, and it's your job, along with Ralph and Bill, to write this down. Now, if you're like, you can't even copy my notes good on a Sunday, and you've been caffeinated, and you hear oikonomia or koinonia, it's not hard at all to see the difference, two very different words, and that's what happened. That's all it is. Then you have in Revelation 16.5, here's another example. I heard the angel of the water saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one. Now listen to how the King James says it. Righteous art thou which art and who wast and shall be. Is it shall be or holy one? Those aren't even kind of close, are they? Well, every single translation has righteous are you who are, who were, O holy one. The difference is a word, hasios, which means holy or righteous, versus esomenos, esomenos. Do you know how samanos, that word, which means and shall be, do you know how that came there? Beza, in his own writing, admits he stuck it in there. He thought it was, he thought that sounded better. Because it's who was, who is, who was, or who was, who is, and then you kind of expect it and shall be. But instead it says, oh, holy one. And he's like, no, that, that must have been a mistake. So he changes it and puts a seminos, which means and shall be. He actually explains that. We know how it happened. Then you have good old First John 5, 7 and 8. For there are three that testify. This is the Johannine comma. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. That's what your Bible most likely says. That's verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says in the King James. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. That's radically different. Where did this come from? And why are these liberal translations like the New American Standard ripping out God's word and trying to deny God's trinity? That's the typical argument that you get. Well, they didn't exist in Erasmus's first two Greek New Testaments. It, they weren't there. They were in the Latin Vulgate. And so the church, the Roman Catholic Church, put a lot of pressure on him and said, it's, they got to be there. 
And Erasmus is like, look, I'm making a Greek manuscript at New Testament, and there's not a single Greek New Testament passage or manuscript that has these words in them. I'm not putting them in. And so then they said, well, what if we find you a manuscript with in Greek that has those words in there? This is actually historically documented. I'm not like making this up. If we find that, will you agree to put it in? He said, yes, because he knew there was no Greek manuscript out there. He had them all. There's only 12. He only had 12 at this time. Magically, shortly thereafter, a, a Greek manuscript with just those words shows up. And all they did was they had a guy do it in Greek. And there it is. And he was a man of his word. And so he put it in, and that's how the Johannine comma showed up in the King James. It doesn't exist anywhere, but it's there. So this comes into then what's called the critical text. That's what all of your Bibles, unless you have the King James, is based off of. This is a United Bible Society, which is this one. This is what I use. This is my actual Greek New Testament I use. This is the Nestle and, Alon rather, and that's, this is what Matt Miller was used. They're the same thing. They're, if you were to look at them, you have right here is the Greek text, the actual Bible in New Testament in Greek. Then you have some side references, and down here is called the apparatus. And the apparatus is a bunch of footnotes, and every single manuscript ever found anywhere, no matter how bad it is, if there is a variation or a variant, it's in there. Every single letter and every single word of the New Testament, no matter how it's rendered in any manuscript, is found in there. In the main body is what they believe is the best. But if there's any exception, they note that down in the apparatus so you can check for yourself. They don't hide anything. Now, remember, Erasmus had 12 manuscripts. That's it. Some people uh, think it was really only eight, but it doesn't matter. We have over now over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 25,000 other witnesses, meaning um, a church father back in, let's say, origin, quotes what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians, and he writes it out in Greek. He says, as the Apostle Paul writes, and he writes out in Greek, well, now we have another little witness. That's, it's not as important as a manuscript, but we can compare all of these. And this is actually part of the wonderful way the Bible was protected because it wasn't kept by one group. It, it spread out, and so thousands upon thousands of people have copied this, and with that, you have all of these different witnesses, and you can put them together, and you can compare, and there's this whole science involved in it that we don't have time to get into, but it's very fascinating. Now, people who try to talk down about your translation, they'll usually say something like, well, this is like phone tag, and you know the thing, we, I, I whisper in Joey's ear a certain phrase, and then Joey whispers it to his wife, and she probably is the one that screws it up, and whispers it, and on and on, right? And by the time we're done, uh, I was saying something about how to make a cherry pie, and it turns out to be how to fly a plane. And you're like, how did that happen? That's usually the kind of thing they do. And they say, see, that's, you can't trust all of those things. We need to trust the King James. But actually, it's a good thing. And in fact, it helps you trace the errors. So here, I could take five of you, and I could have a whole paragraph that I say, all five of you, or let's say you four, you're going to write this down word for word. Everyone else is gone, and you're going to write this down. Don't compare. You're not allowed. And off I go. And then you are all to go into separate areas, and you're to sit with five people and do it with them. And they're all going to do it with five. And they'll pretty soon you have thousands, right? And then we compare all of those. And we're going to find all kinds of variations and differences. Why? Because people don't always listen carefully. Or they, they were in a hurry. Or they misspelled something. Whatever it is, okay? But you know what? We can actually trace it back. Because we'll start to notice, you know what? This whole group over here seems to all of a sudden start using this word instead of the other word. What happened? Well, we can start tracing back and we find out that it was Joey. Joey screwed up. 
because, because we actually know the original four, right? And we can see that his wife and you two, you all did great. But Joey inserted an extra word. And now we can see his five and then those five's five. Does that make sense? You can actually trace it down. And you literally can do that today. You can actually see an ancient Greek manuscript. And you can see where they added some words in the margin, just like you might write in your Bible. And then they can show you older or new, uh, later manuscripts that all of a sudden what was in the margin is in the text. It's really quite cool. Now, the reformers didn't have those manuscripts, and so they had to make do with what they had. But what they did have, those few they had, they were eager to look at because they were trying to do what we're still doing today. They want to be faithful to the text. Basically, what they had was Erasmus's Texas Receptus, and the reality is that they didn't always have everything they wanted, but they had as best they could, and that's how the King James Version came about. Now, let me bring all this to a close. That doesn't mean shut down. Just listen for a couple more minutes. When we get into the whole issue of King James, it's unfortunate because some very unkind things get said on both sides of it. And you can be called an apostate, a false believer, all this. The debate about the King James is not as big today as it used to be. Back in the 70s and 80s when these translations were coming out, all kinds of sermons were preached against the corruption of God's word, etc. This is something I grew up with. For the most part, what, you, what will happen is all of you are going to land somewhere. You'll, that's just the reality of what you'll land. You're going to do whatever is most comfortable for you, and I would have no problem which, one, which version you use of the, uh, of the Bible, as long as it's a decent translation. The debate, though, can be very unkind, and I would argue that very few of you would ever benefit by getting involved in it, if you want to, have fun, I think you'll regret it. Um, I used to follow one man named Peter Ruckman out of, I believe, Florida. He was a crazy dude, is what he was. Um, but he believed that the King James was literally inspired. So it was right, even when every Greek manuscript said something else, he would say, no, the King James is God's inspired word. So it's the same as the exact letter that Paul wrote. The central objective is to try to explain, though, how we got the Bible, why we can trust it. And there's all sorts of forces that can come into play on this subject that can get you off-center and down roads that you don't want to go because there's no end to it. Both of these break down into two groups. You're either hold to the, uh, the critical text or the received text. That's just how it is. Once you get into the critical text, then there's subcategories that you can go into. And if you go the received text, there's subcategories that you can go there. It doesn't matter. There's, it's not that simple. It's far more complex than I'm able to give you in this short time. But it's also not that hard. The debate really often has nothing to do with which text family is best though on the surface it may appear. Usually what it is is there's a strong conviction that the King James Version is the best translation, and there's this pushback against the modernization of English, and therefore we'll just stick with the good King James. If it was good enough for King James, it's good enough for me, that kind of a thing. Regardless, what is important for you is to have the confidence of the veracity of the, of the Word of God. It's trustworthy. Because at the core of it all is Jesus Christ. Did he come or not? Can we trust it? We only know it from the word. Does he stand in our place as the substitute for sin? Yes or no? We only know that from the word of God. God has promised us certain things as blessings if we trust in Christ. Are they things we can trust in? We are to be a people of the book, and the amount of labor and time and energy invested in giving us a good translation is something that should be treasured. And I have absolute confidence that this past, this book contains God's word. And if I have questions, I can go to this, and I can look at every exception and think through it. 
So can you. You just have to go learn Greek first. And the same applies to Hebrew, but much less. So what's my final statement on all of this? As we go into chapter 9, which will be my next time I preach in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we're going to see more verses that are missing. So in chapter 8 and 9 of Acts, this happens, and so I thought, let's just deal with this straightforwardly. I hope in some way this has been helpful to you. I know it's not an exciting subject or soul-moving, but hopefully it will encourage you or help you appreciate what happens and what is happening and how we got our Bible. My only statement to you is pick a good translation. If you don't know what translation to use, look in the seat underneath you and you'll find one. We don't give you the bad ones here. But most importantly, what I want you to do is not just have a good translation, but become a man or woman of it. Read it, live it, believe it. And I think that you'll find in all that God will do much in your life. Let's pray. So Father, as we end this day, I pray that we would consider again the treasure that is ours, the the literal millions of hours invested by faithful people laboring to bring to us a good translation, that we would not be wasteful in our time and ignore it and to invent other things that should be more important to us. Let us be a people of the book so that we might know you, the God who gave us this book. We thank you for your mercies, the way that you do reveal to us your truth, and let us be that people. In your son's holy name, amen.